I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is the Reading Women Podcast, where we are reclaiming half the bookshelf by talking about books by or about women. And today we are here with Emily Biddo, the author of The Strays. So welcome. We're very excited to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you're in New York right now on a book tour, is that right? Yeah, mini, mini, mini book tour. Um, and also I was actually meant to be hanging out with my best friend who was here working and then she got sick and had to go back to Australia oh. about two days before I arrived. So I'm kind of having a solo holiday now. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I hope she feels better soon. But we're very happy that you're in the U.S. so that we can talk to you more easily. And, you know, I think we're, what, 12 to 14 hours apart, U.S. and Australia? Yeah. yeah. Logistically, it helped. That would have been difficult, logistically. <laughs> yeah. We would have made it work somehow, I guess. We'll get up at 3 a.m. Uh, we'll drink our coffee. Sure, sure. We will. <laughs> but, yeah, so I we want to talk to you about The Strays. I just loved it so much. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you. We want, I want to talk to you about it because as a public nerd, I thought it was really interesting how The Strays won the Stella in 2015, and so it came out in Australia. I, don't know, I think, was it originally 2014 when it came yeah, out? Yeah, 2014, yeah. Yeah, so it's been really staggered, and it's released mm. to the UK and the US. So how has that been? Just like, you're kind of like reliving the book release, and then how have the reactions been different? Yeah, this is, for me, this is just a book that keeps on giving. Um, so it came out in, in 2014, and then it was almost kind of coming up to a a year um, after it had been published that it won the Stella Prize and I sort of thought oh you know that's it it's had its run it's done what it's going to do and then that obviously kind of created a whole lot more sort of publicity and sales and things and then off the back of that that was kind of how I got the US deal also the UK but when I signed up with the US publisher it was kind of like for you know maybe close to 18 months in the future when it was actually going to come out so it's just been like you know big gap between each of those things but it's good for me because it means, you know, I keep getting these nice little things happening. But in terms of the reaction being different in different places, I think it seems like people are hopefully sort of having the same response here as in Australia. I was a little bit worried because it is quite Australian in content, which we'll probably talk about. But, you know, I think it's essentially kind of about friendship and art and groups of people who want to live a different kind of life. And I think that sort of happens the world over so hopefully people kind of get that no matter where they are oh i i think so and it is very australian but i didn't feel like i had any problems identifying with it or connecting to it so you've led in perfectly to one of the next things we were going to ask you which is um <laughs> for those who haven't read the strays like how would you describe it and kind of what the inspiration was for the plot because it's a beautiful plot and very complex and unique too oh, thank you yeah so basically it's it in Australia, in Melbourne, the main part of the action is set in the 30s and 40s around a group of artists, but it's kind of told from a point later in time in the 80s, narrated by this woman called Lily, who is looking back on her childhood and her friendship with the daughter of one of the artists. So it's kind of got these two main threads. One is about the friendship between these two girls when they are kids and then sort of 
as teenagers and how they end up sort of falling out and drifting apart um, and the impact of that on Lily for the rest of her life. And then also this story of this little artist community that's quite sort of bohemian and going against what's a very sort of conservative mainstream climate in Australia and in sort of art community at that time. It's a great description. I mean, it sounds wonderful and I love the little commune kind of story, but you have taken a totally fresh look at it. I know very little about history in Melbourne or art in general. So all of this was like a whole new world for me. What One of the things I wanted to ask you was what research did you do and are they based off real people? Um, yeah, so they are very loosely inspired by a group of artists that were living out of Melbourne in the 30s and 40s um, who are kind of referred to as the Heidi Circle if you want to do some research on them. They were a really fascinating little community of people, probably a little bit more out there than some of the stuff that goes on in my book. To sort of answer the first part of your question, a lot of research about this particular group of artists and some of the stuff that went on in this house. So it was a, it was a house that was owned by a couple who were not artists. They were sort of wealthy patrons of the arts, I guess, and collectors, and they collected not only artwork but artists. They brought a whole lot of young aspiring and an emerging kind of artist into their house, invited them to kind of live and work there and supported them and was just coming out of a depression in Australia. So a lot of the artists at that time were incredibly broke and couldn't afford to really paint. So this was like the way that they could afford to really paint. Yeah, some of the relationships and, and things that went on in that group were just pretty crazy. Um, there were kind of love triangles and all sorts of dramas. One of the artists that maybe um, some American listeners will know is Sidney Nolan. He was kind of one of the main artists that was there, one of the main sort of modernist artists uh, in Australia at the time who's had a little bit of um, international recognition, I think, and he had a sort of relationship with Sunday Reid, who was the woman that owned the house. Yeah, just the personalities that were there were just so fascinating. And there's a lot of sort of archival material in the State Library of Victoria, which I looked up and sort of spent a lot of time going through, reading their letters and journals and things like that, kind of to get a sense of mainly, you know, how they spoke and thought and what they were reading and talking about and things like that. And then I guess having all of that background and knowing about those particular real life characters, I sort of put that aside essentially and created my own little group of characters so that they weren't, you know, directly purporting to be those people specifically. I think I wrote this in the dust jacket, but none of your characters are actually real people, right? They're all fictional characters? I mean, there are probably for people who know that group of artists, they would recognize like little, you know, bits and pieces that I've sort of taken from, you know, the way it was set up, the idea of the kind of couple that runs the the place and have a lot more money and sort of power over the younger artists and things like that. So it's sort of, I guess, based on kinds of people and the relationships between them, but they're not, you know, they're not actual people. I will say, though, that you do a very good job at that, because at one point, like I read the dust jacket first and I thought that's what I'd read. And then like about halfway into the book, I was like, oh, man, I want to Google this guy's artwork. And then I was like, <laughs> oh, wait, it's not real. He doesn't <laughs> Right. So that was a little bit disappointing, but I definitely got well, the Well, you can Google it. like people like Sidney Nolan 
um, Albert Tucker, Joy Hester, they would be the kind of, if you're looking for an idea of what the artwork might have looked like, they're the sort of maybe Charles Blackman, they're sort of artists that I know from that period in Australia and whose art I had in mind when I was writing it. Well, I will definitely check them out. But in the book, it seems like this whole story centers around Eva and Lily. And you mentioned on the very first page how her how Eva's mom describes the twinning of two souls who are reborn over and over and reunited and a different kind of relationship in like future lives which is just beautifully beautifully written and um so Lily and Eva have this like really deep friendship and it's like really intimate and kind of seems like it's at times more than just like a friendship I don't know like it borders on kind of like romantic language the way that you describe them how did you go about like describing this relationship really getting into the feelings and the connection that Lily and Eva have for each other? I basically sort of modelled it on friendship that I had when I was a girl with my best friend and sort of just putting myself back to that time when I think when you're that age, your friendships can be so intense, I think, particularly between young girls. And that was something, yeah, that I really felt strongly about writing about because I think it's something from my reading doesn't seem to get kind of weight that it deserves in terms of like the importance of those relationships, friendships between women um, compared to, you know, romance or, or family relationships. And so I wanted to, I guess, slightly sort of aggrandize that relationship by making it, you know, like super intense and, and have so much importance. But I think that those relationships do, those early friendships, they they are kind of everything to you when you're when you're that age. So it's sort of based on, I guess, a slightly exaggerated version of my early friendship. I really liked how the focus of your book was not the artists, mm. i.e. the men. It, it was on girls. It was on a yeah. female friendship, which I mean, in the history of the universe, you know, is really disparaged. Yeah. Your language, like the first page is my favorite page because it really describes the relationship. <laughs> like it's above platonic. It's above, above romantic. It's something else. It's something beyond... Mm. Mm-hmm. here where we are now kind of thing and it just seems so like mythological like I don't know magical it which was yeah. oh my goodness I'll stop gushing I'll spare you uh, <laughs> but yeah so I guess the next question that I have is uh speaking of magical the as Lily becomes uh, enchanted with Eva and her family like from the very moment she meets Eva Lily is just obsessed with Eva and her family and then they go to their house and the house is like this giant estate kind of thing and there's so many like nooks and crannies and you have like the garden and everything and it just seems like a different kind of world and it made me I know Autumn and I have talked about this but it made us feel really nostalgic for like this childhood and it, definitely it's, it's not even our childhood but we felt like we had experienced it <laughs> twofold question did you plan on having the reader feel that nostalgic or did you like have it during your writing process and how did you figure out how to put the enchantment in there like the immediate attraction and kind of the magical feel of uh the estate as like a location and almost as a character of itself mm. so i guess for the First part of the question, the idea of the nostalgia, that was, yeah, definitely something that I wanted the reader to feel, so I'm glad that you did. I was really interested in writing about memory and the way that we, over the course of our lives, look back on, 
you know, some of those really formative early experiences and the way that we kind of mythologize those and then, you know, the process that we might have to go through of um, revisiting those memories, you know, maybe having to at different times sort of shift the way that we think about those early experiences. Um, I was interested in the way that Lily sees her past and her friendship with Eva and her time around the Trentham family because she absolutely worships this family. They're completely different from her own. They're kind of everything that she wants to be. They live this kind of extraordinary existence and it's just everything she kind of aspires to. But then later on when she sort of re-meets some of those people Um, not to give anything away, but she is kind of, I guess, forced to reevaluate her perspective on the past compared to other people's perspective on the past. And I think that's something that I find really interesting. People remember things differently. They may have had very similar kind of experiences and all gone through the same things, but, you know, they won't see them in the same way. Even individually, we don't see our own past the same way at different points in our lives. Um, So that the kind of early part of the narrative, I really wanted to just wholly kind of take on that romantic um, mythological sort of view, the nostalgia about the past that Lily feels and has kind of carried with her all her life. And then I guess at some point to sort of fracture that slightly. I was really mesmerized with how the house and the setting itself, like most of the book takes Mm. place at the house and the house is almost like a character Mm -hmm. in the story because it's just so alive. Yeah. I mean, that house in some ways was based on a few different houses because I I spent a bit of time out at the house where the the real group of artists that I researched lived and that's kind of out. It's now sort of in suburban Melbourne, but it was outer Melbourne surrounded by orchards and it's kind of along the river and they had a big, big garden there, which is pretty magical. And so I spent a lot of time there wandering around the garden and, um, you know, fed bits of that into it. You know, just different the houses that I remember from early, early childhood. You know, that feeling that you get when you go into a big house when you're a kid and it just seems like so much bigger and more grand. I think there's some places that I've been that I remember being just huge and magical and then you might go back to them 10 years later and you're like, oh, this is just a normal-sized house. Um, That's so yeah, true. Trying to sort of put myself yeah, back into that child's perspective where you know things seem so much more magical than they do as an adult. I did think that the use of perspective on the past was fascinating and you really got the feeling of how conflicted Lily was especially she got older about how she remembered the past and Mm. so one of the things that I think is fascinating is you know she decide and this isn't much of a a giveaway or a spoiler but as she's reflecting on this Lily decides that she wants to write or she thinks she decides that she wants to write about her experiences and one of the things she points out is how all of the books written about that time focus on the men in those circles and not the women but when you read as you read the book the men are the fringe characters and the women like the mom and Lily and Eva and you know her sister and like everyone's like so central to what's going on so like this marginalization of women is that something that you found in your research that the women in these circles had been marginalized or were there's there are other areas that you were thinking about as you were writing the story that kind of 
inspired you to include it in your novel? Yeah, definitely. Um, So I wrote this novel as part of a creative writing PhD. I had to do a research sort of project alongside it as well. And I was looking at, I guess, sort of representations of artists in literature, but the way that the sort of myth of the artist that's mainly come down to us from like romanticism, um, the way that sort of myth is reflected in literature. Essentially that myth, when I started kind of delving into it, like the idea of what is an artist, what does it mean to be an artist? And what I kind of discovered is that there's this very, very strong myth that's, you know, been inherited from hundreds of years ago that to be kind of like a, a quote, genius, you have to sort of be essentially a man. And, you know, there's a whole lot of other things that go along with that to be the idea that you're born a genius, you're different from other people, you're kind of like this slightly tortured person who's outside of the normal social um, realm. And it's very much sort of opposed to things that are also associated with women at that time, um, like the domestic and having kids and all of that is just sort of like completely anathema to being a genius artist. And so, you know, I didn't want to kind of make the book like a sort of feminist statement or anything, but I wanted to kind of, I guess, bring that in a little bit and just have a sense of, you know, this artist figure who's, you know, I, I kind of did create this troubled genius artist in a way, this guy Evan who's the sort of one of the main artists but I wanted to situate him within the whole world of people he's got a wife he's got kids he's got people around him and and that they are actually just as interesting and complex and and sort of potentially creative as he is the thing that's that's been quite interesting to me is that a lot of the reader reactions to Elena, who is the mother of the the um, three girls in the book, um, who's not, you know, a great mother at times, but neither is Evan a great father. And readers have often kind of said, oh, Helena, she's a terrible mother. And, you know, it was shocking what she, how she treated the kids in the novel. And I kind of go, what about the dad, you know? Like, um, <laughs> he just kind of gets away with it because he's an artist. And, you know, that's kind of how it's been historically as well. So that's another sort of element that I found really interesting what it means to be a mother um, as well as an artist as opposed to a father and an artist, which kind of can easily coexist apparently. Yeah, I think you see that as well later in the book. I don't want to give any spoilers, so I'll just use vague terms. But another artist who is a female becomes a mother, and she really has that crisis of identity, mm, of yeah. motherhood and being an artist. Now that you mentioned that, I'm, I'm just going to have to reread it and look for all the things that you've talked about and make notes. And <laughs> I read a library copy originally, so I couldn't take notes, but I had sticky notes. Thoughts? <laughs> That's okay. awesome. I want to ask just one more question about the book, and then we'll ask you about some of your inspiration. But I was really blown away by just your writing on a sentence level. It was just incredibly beautiful how lyrical it is. And some writers are very good at other features like plotting and uh, maybe world building or characterization. But your writing is just astounding. And is there anything in particular in your writing process that you use to help work on uh, your writing? I started off writing poetry before I started writing prose. So I think I'm very, I am very focused on, you know, the language itself and the kind of sentence level. Also, I tend to be quite 
image focused, I guess. Like I, I tend to try and visualize scenes and sort of structure them around particular images. So I guess that would be one thing that I think lends itself to, you know, creating quite sort of vivid scenes, hopefully. You know, probably the other thing about writing poetry is I feel like I'm quite focused on rhythm in the prose. I feel like when I'm writing, I often have a sense of, you know, okay, I need a two-syllable word here or a three-syllable word here, and I don't quite know why, but it's like as I write, it, it sort of creates this rhythm. I don't know that, whether that <laughs> actually really explains anything, but those, those are just sort of the things that came to mind that all of those things go into how I'm sort of writing as I go along, you know, on a, on a sentence by sentence level, focusing on imagery and, and rhythm and that sort of stuff. I think you can definitely, definitely tell. Like I read the first page I always just open up and say you need to read this book and here's why and so I just use the first page because it's true she does <laughs> yeah I think did I send you an audio file of it Autumn and, or did I send and that to you sent else? me a picture of it you sent me both <laughs> well, well. well because I hadn't, I hadn't originally the story goes I hadn't really attended to read the entire thing but I was just like you know perusing the first whatever and I just was sucked in I was like this is just incredibly beautiful everyone has to read this now so um but we could probably talk about your book a lot longer I know I I definitely could switching gears a little bit we wanted to ask you about some of your uh inspiration for your own writing and you mentioned that you have a PhD in writing so obviously you love books and writing and literature so who are some of the women writers who have inspired you? So many so many so many it's hard to name them but probably some of the kind of classics for me would be Virginia Woolf. There's a couple of writers that I don't know whether you will know them they they're actually both um, Australian but ended up living in the States so kind of they might be either familiar to your listeners or new great writers to follow up, uh, Christina Stead and Shirley mm. Hazard. Um, yeah, I'm really obsessed with both of those writers. There's another, actually another Australian writer that you probably won't have heard of. She's sort of been, I guess, rediscovered in the last few years. She was out of print and, and um, a small publishing company in Australia called Text has kind of been republishing her books and she's called Elizabeth Harrower. She's amazing. And then Doris Lessing I love. I guess slightly more recently people like Margaret Atwood, Toni Morrison. I think most of those writers are writers that sort of tend to focus on that language element of writing as well. That's probably sort of what, what I gravitate to as a reader. But also they, I think they all focus on female experience very strongly definitely some of our favorites are definitely listed in there and I know Kendra especially is like a hardcore Virginia Woolf fan so yeah <laughs> that's why she's in our logo she's just insanely <laughs> amazing isn't she but yeah I definitely want to check out the Australian authors that you mentioned because I haven't heard about them they kind of have a hard time coming across the ocean over here yeah yeah, exactly. We were talking to Heather O'Neill about how Canadian authors struggled to cross the border. The more I talk to authors, the more I realize how few books I've read and how many more I need to read, <laughs> especially oh, outside our borders. Yeah, <laughs> so many books to read. But as we mentioned before, it's been a while since this book came out, and I'm sure you've been working on things since then. <laughs> Is there anything that you've been writing or working on lately that 
you would like to share with us or mention? Well, I am writing a second novel, um, but I am slightly superstitious about <laughs> talking about what I'm working on. Um, but I would just say it's very different from Australia's. It's um, contemporary story. Um, actually, I'm doing a bit of research for it while I'm over here. So awesome. A little teaser. <laughs> Some of it is Oops. set in the States. Well, that's enough for us, and we'll definitely keep our eyes out for it. And when the title is announced, we'll be sure to put it on our radar. So I think that's everything. So that is our show. And of course, we'd like to thank Emily Bitto for talking to us about her book, The Strays, which is out now in the U.S. and it is published by 12 books. And the hardback is beautiful and the U.S. cover is stunning and everyone should have a copy. You can find her on the internet at emilybitto.com and we will have links to her website and to her book in our show notes as always. And you can find me, Autumn Privet, on Twitter and Instagram at Autumn Privet and Kendra at Katie. Winchester and thank you all so much for listening and thank you for the reviews you've left us and all the love you've shown us we really appreciate it and we are just so thankful for all of our listeners and for supporting bringing voices like Emily Biddo's more into the public eye so thank you so much I'll talk to you later guys bye